Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Living Fiction Podcast, Cheeky Memoirs of How a DID System Became a Manipulator's Personal Puppet Show. Twice. I am your host this evening, Zach Solari Icarus, the gatekeeper of the Living Fiction System. This episode takes place exclusively in the in-world. Our in-world is very fantasy-based, so there will be mention of vampires, magic, soul-stealing, past lives, people coming back to life, etc. Everyone you hear of, except April, is a member of the Living Fiction System. I'll make sure to link the roster of alters in the description below in case you need a reference. You probably will. I'm sorry, there's no way for me to make this not convoluted. This is the product of the self-conscious world building for more than a decade, so it's just gonna be. I've made it as simple as humanly possible. Just take a deep breath and try to follow along. Trigger warnings for this episode are abusive relationships, as almost always, suicide, loss of a child, manipulation, and mob mentality. the system wasn't too enthused with Zant's arrival. I think Neb had been spouting the theory that she had split from Star in her childhood, and people never really believed her on that either. Oh yes, this is obviously the metaphor for the death of your childhood. So when Zant suddenly arrived, it seemed like everyone else in the system saw it as having Neb's face, but it was different this time. I think the main assumption was that Xanth was a parasitic spirit from the 19th century that claimed squatter's rights within the body. Which, if we're being honest, is not that far from the truth. <laughs> Sorry. In the inworld, they were slowly looking different, too. I believe that Xanth initially looked like Neb in the beginning because they assumed themselves to be her, but the reality is... They don't look much like the body, and in fact, they're not even entirely Caucasian in the inworld. Fasoxa, while writing them, had based their physical appearance off of a half-brother she suspected herself to have, as her father had had an affair with a Desi woman. Xanth usually doesn't mention this, because Rachel Dolezal is a thing, and the body is still white. Those are spaces we're just not going to claim. But, anyway... But people seemed to look at Xanth and felt that they were cheated out of Neb and had this Wish.com version. They were subject to all sorts of comments in the beginning. So much more selfish than Neb. Look how arrogant. Vain. I feel like Neb would still be here if clockwork weren't. Neb's closest friends, Illusion, Sound, Rise, tended to avoid Xanth on the whole. It was too hard on them. If Nebula was Will Turner from Pirates of the Caribbean, the heroic, selfless, driven entirely by love, then Xanth was Captain Jack Sparrow, self-serving, unhinged, and fueled entirely by alcohol. That's not to say Xanth didn't make friends. Aberly was one of the first who sought them out. Koji, when he arrived, he was first known as Hollow, when he didn't have much of an identity. Sound, who was already schizophrenic and terribly abused as a child, initially thought Hollow to be an alter, 
there was a good year or so where the two would split consciousness within the same body within the inworld. Sam would have their body on the waning moon and have that time to spend with his husband, Jack, and their mutual friend, Romeo, and all sorts of others. And Hollow would have it on the waxing moon to hang out with Aberly, Prosper, um, etc. Hollow was quite different from sound. Introverted, moody, sharp-tongued, more childlike. A good reference for him would be Armand from Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles. He is and was an age slider. Sometimes he would be seen as young as six. Other times he would be as old as 18. And sound, just to give you a reference for how she is, um, she once followed her husband through a supermarket loudly singing Eddie Gaga's Paparazzi. Uh, so, yeah, definitely night and day. Many would treat Hollow as sound's alter. He had no memories of his own at first and was only slowly developing his own identity. He eventually realized that he and Sound were both children of an aristocratic vampire named Prosper. The gender-fluid Sound had been his stillborn daughter, and Koji slash Hollow was his son that had died of tragic circumstances. It's actually too dark for this blog, to be honest, which is saying a lot. <laughs> Through the body of a Japanese-Canadian child back in 1990, as Koji had initially lived in the 1700s and 1800s, Azanth felt a sort of kinship with him. The Victorian era had always felt like a home to them, and they both bonded over that. Just as Neb used to keep up on the drama of this household through sound, Xanth became entwined through Koji, who they in turn began to even mentor. Sorry this is getting so convoluted, um, but the setup is necessary for the developments afterwards. At this point, Jack's best friend, the needy and delicate Romeo, had gone and married the stoic and bookish Callisto, who is Sound's best friend. The four of them were practically a set. Romeo and Jack were dramatic, I mean, coming to terms with their mental illness, and Sound and Callisto would constantly be talking them off of one ledge or another. The fact that no one was human meant that everyone could take heavy, horrifying-looking damage without dying. People seemed to come precariously close, but I'd known similar situations that had happened with Jake and Illusion back in the day. Xanth and I were about as unhealthily invested in these relationships as Neb had been. And yes, all of their interpersonal lives seemed to hinge on how well Xanth was getting along with April at the time. But we'll get to that. The inworld is set up as different households that are all spaced out between continents. The geography is loosely based on the outer world with odd differences. Like for some reason, London is only a short drive from the beach. There would be different households that different holiday parties would be held at for weeks on end, and most of the drama happened at the parties when everyone was in one spot. That being said, it's no surprise that one of the most legendary blow-ups in all of the Inworld's history happened at Jack and Koji's wedding ceremony. It was actually a private little affair, not even Xanth, who was friends with Koji at the time, had been invited. And more importantly, as fate would have it, 
Romeo wasn't invited either. The initial ceremony was over and it was their honeymoon. Romeo had called, insecure that he hadn't been on the guest list and he wanted comforted. Of course, Koji was a bit more than irate and implored Jack to let someone else handle Romeo. After all, Romeo had an entire ass husband and family. Why was he bothering Jack on their honeymoon? From what I remember, I don't even think Koji was particularly insulting, just unsympathetic and probably visibly impatient. And then Jack just became thoroughly insulted on behalf of Romeo, screamed at Koji for like an hour, and then stormed out of the room. Koji was scared, crying, begging him to stop. Jack was even angry at Koji for having excluded Romeo from the guest list, even though they both agreed to the guest list beforehand. They eventually, like, partially made up, but the entire thing seemed to split the social sphere. There was a good amount of people, mostly controlled by April, I would later find, thoroughly under the opinion that Koji should have liked Romeo just on principle, I guess. And others, sadly a majority, were under the impression that Koji refusing a wedding guest he didn't like and hardly even knew was a sin fitting of Koji's marriage being ruined before it even began. Koji had hardly been introduced to most of the circle, but all everyone seemed to know is that poor, sweet little Romeo was crying and that Koji was to blame. Jack and Koji were fighting almost constantly as a consequence. Anyone seen defending Koji seemed to have their own allies, via April, turn on them as well. There seemed to be this misconception that because Koji at this time was mistaken as Sound's altar, that whatever he did was reflective of Sound's true inner feelings, which is not how that works, whether you're an altar or not. You're allowed to have different friends, likes, dislikes than the host and other altars. But needless to say, Romeo pressured Jack into guilting Sound to hang out with Romeo more often. Jack would even actively guilt Sound when he didn't. And also, Romeo had an odd way of doing favors for Sound that would always turn into an act of self-harm. On Romeo's way into seeing Sound's modeling event, he fell up the stairs and sprained his ankle. Baking cookies for Sound, he managed to badly burn his hand. And I will tell you, this is a very fantasy-based in-world, and most of these people, Romeo included, are like the super powerful, like, graceful, used-to-combat motherfuckers. So, like... Yeah. <laughs> One thing I do remember really clearly is sound bitterly muttering under his breath. I feel like if I asked Romeo to get me a glass of water, he'd get hit by a train on the way back from the fucking kitchen. I always felt that that was the most succinct way of putting that situation. Things went from frustrating to terrifying. Koji was not only isolated, but was being regularly berated by those who had taken Romeo's side. If Romeo so much as sniffled, any progress Koji made on his interpersonal relationships fell to ashes before his eyes. He was already undiagnosed bipolar before this, but the situation made him absolutely suicidal. I remember being agitated with the situation. I mean, it was not fair. It all had snowballed from Romeo's absolute sense of entitlement. Whenever Xanth brought it up to April, it seemed the situation would get even more severe. 
April would make it clear that she didn't like Koji and would cite Jack's increasing instability over the situation as obviously Koji's fault. Xanth and Aberly were trying to hold Koji up wherever they could. You know, the strange historical child that felt like he could never belong in the modern age, that believed he wasn't allowed a family, a husband, or children. And they say narcissists can't have empathy. Once, during a party, I believe he attempted to invite himself along to a function, like he was so desperate to have any sort of contact at the time, and a room full of people just screamed at him for it. He started to, for lack of a better word, disappear. He was curled up in the fetal position, whispering like, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. And he started to fade, essentially going slowly transparent. Well, Xanth has a power in this world which allows them to steal souls, erase memories, or even manipulate other people's souls. Generally, they use this ability for good, as far as they tell me. They looked Koji in the eyes and stole him so he wouldn't go away. I remember Xanth standing there holding the poor boy's soul in their talon because they had transformed into a white crow temporarily, anything we can do on the inside. All of us have different animals. Um, you know, as an aside, Xanth had speculated whether or not Neb would have been a furry if she had lived, and I think this pretty much confirms it. Anyway, uh, Xanth was flying away from anyone who tried to catch them and take Koji back. It was like someone had taken a battered toy away from a horde of two rough children. You can't have him back until you learn to treat him right. I think it was then that everyone started realizing that they had treated Koji abominably. Santh eventually did release him, and he sobbed in the arms of those who had learned not to condemn him. It was finally everyone's wake-up call. Romeo was, to give him credit, horrified that it had gone so far. The wave of ridicule that had been aimed at Koji on his behalf seemed to turn on to Romeo. But this one was different. The one against Romeo had a stopping point. Now, it's not to say that Romeo didn't have any more drama. Xanthan particularly like Romeo. They believe that there is too much helplessness and entitlement under that bubbly and innocent sort of facade. And also, too many seem to jump to his defense, and it seemed to enable him. There was a time, a few months after that, when Romeo and Callisto kept having fights. Romeo pulled the, You can't say that to me, or I'll kill myself card one too many times he'd also tried to convince callisto that he needed sex in order to prevent his heart problem from becoming worse if you can't tell romeo was originally 100 percent april's creation callisto as dry and imperturbable as he normally was was unraveling and xanth well you know xanth they had opinions in one moment of manic frustration, Xanth jumped into an open windowsill and gripped the sides precariously to further their point, of course. They're like on the fourth floor of this house at this point. Don't you dare tell me to get down from this ledge, they announced to Romeo, Callisto, and a startled Aberly, who was just then getting used to them. Because I'll call that guilting, and I'll jump out the bloody window. And if any of you get scared, I'll use it as cause to hate myself and jump out the bloody window. It was like Basil Fawlty going on a tantrum in Fawlty Towers. Like, there's something so melodic yet unhinged about it. If any of you start convincing me that I shouldn't, I'll say that you aren't listening to me, and I'll jump out the bloody window. 
I know at one point Xanth actually lost their grip on the windowsill, but quickly regained it. This went on for like a good while. Don't you look at me, weird. I'll say that you're invalidating me and jump out the bloody window. If you're wondering if Xanth was drunk at the time, the answer is yes. If you're ever wondering that, statistically, the answer is yes. Averly, well, I mean, he was impressed. He had a little smirk going on throughout Xanth's entire diatribe. Uh, he said to Xanth afterwards, I did see you lose your balance, but I pegged you as the type to want to die to prove your point. I was so caught up in the moment that I'm not saying I would have let you, but... <sighs> yeah, this did have the desired effect. Romeo, who stared at Xanth with increasingly sheepish surprise, did eventually consent to having a one-on-one -on -one talk with Callisto. Romeo did receive therapy for his previously undiagnosed borderline and was able to negotiate needs with his partner with much more productive means. Callisto received therapy for the trauma he endured and would hardly admit to. Koji also received trauma counseling and was subsequently diagnosed and medicated for bipolar. He and Jack would have another try at their wedding, and barring a few more catastrophes, they now live a pretty happy, functional, domestic life. It was around these two incidents that Xanth started to establish their reputation in the inworld. They would definitely get into more mischief, more fitting of a puckish rogue of a side character than anyone's plucky protagonist, but we never forgot how those entire crowds turned against Koji, like mercilessly bullying him just because Romeo had felt spurned. It was a phenomenon that would later be coined as Gaslamp. It haunted us both. It would also serve to foreshadow how our lives fell apart six years later, but we'll get to that. Alright, so thank you so much for listening. This is the first time I've recorded an episode, and when I knew that there was a story of the inworld that was coming up, I pretty much like told Xanth, I'm doing this episode. Um, it was originally told from their point of view in the original blog, because Xanth and I weren't speaking that much yet, but I remember the story so clearly that I was just like, no, you need to let me tell this. And hopefully you all enjoyed it. I know the difference in accents are startling, but, uh, you know, Xanth likes to forget this body was born in Ohio. Anyway, this has been Zach Solari, and thank you for listening to The Living Fiction. Stead at Xanth with increasingly sheepish surprise. Sheepish surprise. I'm Sean Connery. <laughs> Romeo, who stared at Xanth with increasingly sheepish... Why would you write those? <laughs>